How we doing? Morning, morning. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be back. Welcome to ANC. Bumped into some new folks before the service started. It's still fun to try to catch you guys. Everybody thinks that there's something to be gained by showing up early in Austin, Texas. Y'all figure this out. Nothing's early. Everything's late. Anyway, um, it's good to be back. We've been traveling a bit. Last week was, hi, Stephen. Are you well? Are you well? Crazy. Good to see you. You look well. Poke him, Liz. Be sure. Check his vitals. Um, we did a little traveling recently. We, uh, we were, I was in Salt Lake City where I brought a cold home to share with my family on the way to Seattle. So that was very kind of me because we teach our kids to share, only maybe not that. Hey, guys. I'm glad to see you guys. Ever, sorry, having one of those moments. I want GoPros mounted everywhere so that I can, like, still frame, record who's here, and then, like, go call them, like, hey, man, because there's not enough moments to make that happen in real time. So, but that's, like, highly illegal, and you would never want to do that to a crowd of people. But I want to do that to a crowd of people because I miss all y'all. And whenever we ha- don't have a Sunday, like, last week, it seems like old friends, like, hey, how have you been? Anyway, um, so we were, I was on the road a little bit. Some of you know this, some of you don't. Um, I actually have a side job. I, we believe in bivocational sort of approach to pastoring here at ANC, and I've got a, a thing that I work on the side that takes me all over the country to teach, basically teach physicians how to do public presentations. Because the kinds of people who go into medical school and come out with medical degrees often are not the kind of people who are comfortable in front of crowds. You're shocked. <laughs> you know, the bedside inability to communicate kind of translates to the big stage. So there's a small company uh, that I work with where we travel all over and we gather these doctors in spaces and try to teach them how to deliver very complicated information in ways that is more narrative and less science-y, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, but the thing in Seattle was something that we do that somehow we've gotten caught up in. Somehow God has given Allison and I a voice among the foster and adoptive parent space, which is so strange because we've adopted one child, fostered a bunch. Um, but we were in Seattle with a a bunch of families at a family camp, and basically tell, teach them how to bow to their sensei. I don't know. That's just what um, the Lord put on our heart for that. So it's good to be back in God's city where everyone really, if they were honest, would rather live, except the heat. So I do love riding horses along the Puget Sound and picking wild blackberries under 100-foot-tall Douglas firs, but nothing compares to Austin, Texas. So this is where we love to be. So we're going to pick up today again in our series, our surprising series that's taking us a decade it feels like, um, where Jesus quotes the Old Testament. And the original idea, and this was, I, I thought of this this week, the original idea was to figure out how to weave in more Old Testament content into what for us generally tends to be a very Jesus-centered message. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we focus on the teachings of Jesus over all those other things, but I thought when we started this off, this would be fun to teach some of the Old Testament stuff. But what I'm figuring out is that as he grabs these quotes from here and there, mostly Isaiah and Psalms and some of the minor prophets, it still is the message of Jesus because he still sort of finishes the picture. And so it's been really interesting. I think what I'm gathering as I've gone through this with us is that he's still trying to teach us something of the posture of heaven in the world. We're looking at teaching. We want doctrinal points. We want things that we can distill and things we can put into three little points that start with M or L or P or whatever it is that we want to do to try to make it something we can get our head around and what he consistently, in my opinion, seems to be doing is driving this point home about what is the posture of heaven in the world, right? Trying to show us how it is that he is the fulfillment of every ancient and every new expectation. So we pick up today in the book of Matthew 21, 
It's a relatively common parable. It shows up in three of the four Gospels, and so let's read it, and let's dig in. Matthew 21, 33 through 46 reads this way from the NIV. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. Not that wall. Stop thinking that. It's different. He put a wall around it, and he charged them. For, no, I'm joking. He dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, verse 35. They beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. And then last of all, in verse 37, he sent his son to them. And at this point, you should be starting to figure out where this might be going. They will respect my son, he said. This is the landowner. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And that's actually a question Jesus asks the crowd. This next verse is one of those rare cases when the crowd's feedback becomes scripture. Listen to this. The audience fills in here. Verse 41 says, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. <laughs> they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus replies to their reply. Jesus says to them, and here's his quote from the Psalms. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, and this is him helping land the message of the sermon, or of the the quote here, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Either way, you'll be broken by this word. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Pretty bright crowd, huh? They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So much to go, so much to dig into here. Once again, Jesus quotes the book of Psalms, which to me is interesting. How is it that ancient poetry becomes such a fascination of this young rabbi? You know, David wasn't a theologian. David wasn't a historian. David was a poet. He was a worshiper. He was a king. He was a passionate sort of fellow, a little more Van Gogh-ish than perhaps a writer of theology. But somehow Jesus continuously grabs little tidbits from the Psalms and brings them into his teaching. You know, getting inside this parable was a bit of work because it seems on its face to go in a particular direction. At first glance, this feels like a parable of judgment on the people around Jesus, specifically the religious establishment for rejecting Jesus. And if you can extrapolate at all any history from this parable, you can see that it feels like what he's saying is that God is trying to communicate to Israel, but they keep killing the messenger until he sends his son, they're going to kill him too. That's what it feels like this is, this is going on. But we know that Jesus is answering a deeper question that is in the mind of the crowd, specifically the authorities, because he goes a completely different direction with this. By the answer that they give, it's obvious that they are thinking this is about judgment. And yet Jesus goes a different way. This is another truth to power discourse. And in the life and ministry of Jesus, there were many. This is another invitation to think differently about the world. Jesus seems to intuit what the underlying questions of the authorities are, and so he gets back on the soapbox of who belongs and who gets to decide. You know, I've, I was listening back to some of the th sermons of the, of the summer. This is a recurring theme for Jesus. 
People want to talk mechanics. They want to talk doctrine. They want to talk who's in, who's out. Jesus wants to talk access. Access. He wants to, he wants to stretch the cords wide. He wants to have a conversation about who gets to be part of this. And they want to talk about his interpretation of this law or that law or how come you didn't wash your hands or how come your people picked grain on the Sabbath. He wants to talk access because the world that Jesus is building will accept no one else's institutional decisions about who belongs. And this is such an important point that he goes there again and again and again. And any fair read of Jesus in the Gospels would come up with this conclusion, everything belongs to God. That will be the final word. Anyone unwilling to understand this simple fact runs the risk of being held in contempt of heaven's truest earthly objective, which is what? Think about this parable. It's to plant seed liberally, to create, to recreate, to invite into constant and ongoing recreation of life and goodness and abundance, and to enjoy the spoils of that with us, his chosen companions. That's heaven's objective in the world to actually sow a vineyard and to partake in the spoils. This is a story about a landowner, and we're, I guess we're left to fill in the gaps that that would be the God figure who graciously invites some laborers into an arrangement of sorts by which when harvest comes, they both get to revel in the fruit of the soil. He figures in the role of the laborers. That's you and I. The only judgment in this parable comes from the crowd when he asks, what do you think needs to happen, and they say, obviously, punish the bad, not realizing that they just set the trap for themselves. It's always the religious establishment who brings the judgment, isn't it? It's almost never Jesus. Think of one time in your life when it ever actually was Jesus. It's always the church and the institutions we build around it. When one set of renters or tenants doesn't oblige, he continues to try to reinforce the deal. He sends another group of people to ask for that invitation to party with the harvest. And when that fails, he sends his son. And if we're, if we're to believe that this parable in any way expresses the heart of God, the heart of heaven in the world, he's consistently wanting to come back to the same thing. He wants this arrangement with us. He wants to underwrite whatever it takes to enjoy the spoils of a life of companionship with us. The spiritual power structure is trying to trap Jesus into saying something self-condemning in public. They want to catch him on record, right? But Jesus would rather reinforce heaven's objective in the world than answer their questions. And just to say it again, it's this, to plant something creative and to share in the abundance it yields with the human family that gives back and accepts that all good things come from God. You see, nothing has changed from the very beginning. It's always been about a garden. It's always been about a vineyard. It's always been about companionship. He wants to enjoy the spoils of the soil that he created with us. You know this by now, but let me just remind you, the backstory is a mounting urgency to determine where in the hell this young rabbi gets his authority. They need to answer this question quick because the public sentiment is quickly spinning out of control. They were under intense authority. Authority is Jesus tinkering with the imagination of the masses. Why? Because religious authorities always feel responsible to be in control of the branding of what we get to call from God and those things that are not from God. The establishment wants to control the brand. Is this godly? Is this not? Is this from heaven? Is this not? It mattered to them who got the seal of approval, and they wanted to fight to preserve that right. It shouldn't surprise us. We do the same thing. 
It's what every religious institution has done since the history of history, right? They want the exclusive ability to speak on behalf of God. Not just this is what God thinks of you, this is the exclusive angle on what God thinks of you. But hear me, nobody gets that honor. Nobody gets that honor. That's not an honor given to any human being or any human institution or tribe or nation or gender or sexual orientation or skin color or language or culture or anything else you fill in the gaps that was never designed to be something we get to exercise. We don't get to decide what comes from God. It's worth mentioning that the public religious figures would have been exactly waiting for somebody exactly like Jesus who could move the commoners right into their pocket. And so probably part of what we see going on in the New Testament is they're interested to see if maybe he can actually do this, but they can't get him on message. They want to have the birther conversation. You follow me? Happy birthday, dear President Obama. That's on, that was yesterday. Belated birthday. They want to have the birther conversation, and he's busy trying to save the world. Some of you missed that. That's okay. They'll catch it at the eleven. But by this stage in Jesus' public ministry, he had already begun to understand that what's going on is a massive rejection of who he is and his message. Here's why. He didn't behave right. He blew off the laws that they held sacred and he spun other legal institutions or other legal interpretations in ways that they could not appreciate. Basically, he claimed to be one with the Father and this was too far, this was too much. It went beyond their line. It's funny, he reads their mind before they even ask the question. And so he draws from the Psalms. He knows that they're looking at rejecting him completely, his message and his methods, but something magnificent is going to be built out of the people who are rejected by this authority, by this establishment. And so he reaches back from ancient history and he pulls a metaphor. What are the, what are the authorities rejecting when they reject Jesus? Well, he uses these words because he needs to be understood by common people he uses the ancient metaphor of a cornerstone. Some translations have it as a capstone. Here's how it would work. In the ancient world, if you were going to build a building, you had to start with some straight lines. So you had to find some stone that was perfectly, I don't know, a 90 or a 45 or whatever it is you were building. So your, your cornerstone was the stone by which all other lines would be snapped to follow. And so it was essential. It was the importance of doing the first thing right. He says, I am the cornerstone that is rejected by the builders. Some translations say a capstone. A capstone essentially is the stone that's designed to fit in between two stru structural uprights that would perfectly distribute the weight. Think of a capstone in a doorway of an ancient building, right? This, this side of the doorframe and this side of the doorframe have a tendency to not find each other until you put the capstone and it ties them all together. Just think of Legos, guys. If you're not an architect, think of Legos, right? Either way, he's going to say, I know what you're doing. You're rejecting me. And here's what I actually am. They reject him because in their self-protective, nationalistic, tribal opinion, he's not straight enough. He's not straight enough. He draws funny lines. He includes things that shouldn't be included, and he excludes things that ought to be inside. Jesus is not straight enough. He bends. He doesn't fit. He doesn't distribute the weight. He doesn't perfectly express the bridge from the Old Testament expectation to this new world he's, he's building. In their opinion, he doesn't fit. It doesn't work right. It doesn't match the two sides. He sets crooked lines. He flexes. He misinterprets the ancients. He lays it out all wrong. He includes things that are outside, and he excludes things that should be in. He surrenders their advantage. 
you see. If they're in charge of the brand, then they're on the inside. But he surrenders their advantage. He gives away the secret recipe. He pawns the family jewels, and he tells the story of their origin and their place in the world in an unacceptably open and non-exclusive way. And such liberal architectural tolerances are not to be tolerated by the establishment. Here's the quote. He pulls it from Psalms 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the number one stone, the most important stone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in your eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad, wrote David. So what's the point of this exchange? Once again, it feels like another, the crowd is going this way, the conversation is going this way, and Jesus completely goes a different direction. And I'm starting to think there's reasons for this. What is the gospel buried in this parable? Simply this, that Jesus is rejected because if to, he is to be followed and his lines are to be followed, the lines that he draws, you're going to end up with something totally unrecognizable to any religious authority of any era in any place at any time. No exceptions. He stands outside of any institution built around his name, and the older I get, the more I'm convinced that there are no exceptions to this rule even today. But wait a minute, preacher. These are, you're talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day. Yeah, I am. They were missing it entirely, much like we do today. You say, no, they're the ones who got it wrong. We're the ones who get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listen, this man, his teaching will ultimately dissolve all national uniqueness, all denominational uniqueness, all cultural uniqueness that the Jews of Jesus' day were organized around protecting and the people of our day are doing the very same thing. By extension, this prophetic voice from the wily outpost of philosophy and theology still chisels away at our, our notions of exclusivity as if we've got exclusive access to what God has branded pleasing and acceptable in the world. The simple fact is, I wish I could tell you it's otherwise, but we don't. There's a ticking time limit on the revelation we walk with. It feels so innovative. It feels so exciting. So much fun to come here and do this differently. Yeah, and it's still church. And it might not still matter to an awful lot of people. And the biggest enemy to the next thing God's ever going to do is the last thing he did. Why? Because we hunker down and we bore out little core samples deep into that revelation, and we lock things down and we hold. And we will be our parents one day. Here's the only question that matters for us today. Who are we in this story? Who are we in this parable? Think before you answer. I'm afraid we're the brand police, just like the authorities around Jesus. We may not be like the judgmental fundamentalists of the generation that came before us, but listen to me, hate and intolerance is hate and intolerance no matter where it surfaces. No matter where it rises, hate and intolerance are hate and intolerance. And if you allow me this observation as your leader, we've got some reckoning to do. There's an arrogance in this place about doing it right. Oh, we're free. Oh, yeah, we bring yetis with unidentified substances to Saturday night shows in our O4 Center. <laughs> Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's so awesome. Some of y'all just brought flat-out bottles. But we fancy ourselves so free, so untethered. We're always the good guys in the story. 
You say, no, 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 you got it wrong. ANC's known all over this country and in other places for being super open and super wonderfully you know, affirming in all these things and we're beautifully and effortlessly open and affirming to some but not to others. Shall I make a list of the people that we love to hate and exclude? Don't make me embarrass us. Don't make me say right here in front of baby Jesus, his blessed mother and all these assembled. Start making that list and let that hate rise in our heart. You see, here's the truth of the gospel. It's gonna wanna set you free too. It's gonna wanna set me free too. There's no high ground when it comes to this. This is the anti-institution Messiah. This is the anti-build-anything-around-him preacher. This is the gospel that tears all those things down. So you want truth today? We're not that different than those who've come before us. We don't tolerate the intolerant, which makes us what? Intolerant. We've just flipped the roles and tinkered with the definitions to skew it in our favor. See, we are our own cornerstone and we like to decide what is in and what is out. And the risk of living in unrecognized and undiagnosed intolerance is very, very high. And here's the risk. To reject what God is building in the earth. To consider it as, nope, that's too far out. Nope, they don't use the same names we do. Nope, they don't sound like we do. Nope, that's too far afield. That's too far to the left or to the right. And undiagnosed intolerance is a real problem in the people who follow God. We can't miss this point. The only way to walk in this world is with an open hand and an open heart and knowing that whatever language and culture and particular experience we have, it helps, but ultimately it will always close too narrowly around our definitions, setting ourselves up as the great arbiters and deciders of where these lines get put. And without fail, it's gonna cross wires with Jesus at some point. You see, heaven is hell-bent to plant a vineyard in the earth and to enjoy the spoils of the soil with a family that understands that it actually all belongs to him. Everyone is invited to this vineyard. Everyone has a place at this table. And we are the ones who object heaven's pleasure in the earth by deciding how this works and who gets to be in. And we effectively try to police a brand that does not belong to us. Does anybody know what I'm talking about today? It's a hard and destabilizing message if you can accept it. You know, it's interesting, this idea of being the chief cornerstone, specifically having been rejected by the authorities. This is not just an idea that the gospel writers write about. Peter and Paul pick up on this. Now, if you don't know this, Peter is probably the, the first leader of the early church. Paul is probably the first great theologian. He was one step removed from the 12, but Paul wrote almost your entire New Testament. And so, the gospel writers, Peter and Paul, all grab onto this imagery. There's something here for us. There's something here. This is the one who the world has rejected, who's building something redemptive out of broken things, and that's never not gonna be the case. Paul writes to the church in Ephesians. You don't have this on your screen. Just listen. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. He's writing to the Ephesians, who were total and complete pagans in the minds of the Jews. These were the people who rode all the time with the wheels off and no seatbelt. The Ephesians were the worst of the worst of the day. I can't think of who we could put in that category other than maybe Patriots fans. I don't know. <laughs> so Paul writes to the Patriots fans. Sorry, New Jersey. New Jersey's in the room. I hope you're not Patriots fans. You're not. Jets fans? What are you? Soccer fans. Nope, not that either. Oh, well. 
Paul writes, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You see, Jesus is going to say, I am this rejected piece. Paul is going to say, Paul is going to write, and everything we're building is built on those rejected pieces. And then Peter will go on to say later, 1 Peter 2, he will say this, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Paul will say, all of this is built on those rejected pieces, and then Peter will take it even closer and say, and you are one of those rejected stones as well. Here's my point. He's always going to stand outside of anything we build, and we're always going to have to knock it back down. We are called to be followers, not builders, you see. We are called to follow, and to follow means to constantly be on the way somewhere different, right? This idea of migration, how can it be that tiny animals wake up one day and say, everything is perfect and we have to leave? And yet this is who we are and this is the only way to follow Jesus. There is no other way. Peter makes this point. The rejected one assembles rejected ones and this is who we are. This is our identity. That's who Jesus was. That's who we are. And he's doing a beautiful thing in the world with broken pieces. There's no straight angles here. Look around you. Don't look around you. That would be rude. There's no straight edges here. And that's the point. And that's the welcome. And that's the, that's the anti-institutional nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we can hear it. So I'm actively asking God, what is the list of people that cause hatred to rise in me? Because hate is hate. Intolerance is intolerance. I think, no, 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 I'm right. You, you, no, you need to get woke, frankly. You are like in the past. Like, come on, get with it. And what's rising up in me is just a different face of what's bothering me about those other people. And so that's our question today. How do we do this? How do we follow this guy? How can we possibly follow this master? He's going to make it so difficult because we're never going to be safe and we're always going to be packing a bag and it's never going to be safe for us to say what's in, what's out, who's with us, who's not. It just isn't, and that's by design. Why don't you join me in prayer? Band, why don't you find your way to the stage? You can stand to your feet. It's a weird little time in summer. Do you guys, some of you know, some of you don't, most of you probably don't know, but generally in summer at ANC, there's like 25 of us in a room. Like, if you've only come to the 930, you don't realize that there's twice as many of you coming to the 11. In the 11, we use the whole balcony, and we use the whole floor. This is weird. It's not supposed to happen. You guys are supposed to be traveling in Ohio or somewhere where it's cool. God's doing something really crazy here, and I can't figure it out. But if the fall is any extrapolated sort of reality of the summer, we're in big trouble. And you're going to have to show up early again to get seats because I'm telling you some strange things going on around here. But I'm glad you're here. Let's pray.